As Steve said in the opening, today is commonly called Palm Sunday, or another uh, name for it is the Triumphal Entry. It's given that name because it's based on the historical actions of Jesus when he entered Jerusalem the week before the Passover. And this account is recorded in all four of the gospel narratives, and that's a fact that shows us how important it is in the life of Christ and the unfolding story of Jesus as the Messiah King. Today we're going to be looking into the triumphal entry from the perspective of the Apostle John, which is why I had us turn to John chapter 12. To help us better understand and appreciate the significance of uh, Palm Sunday, it's good for us to see how John narrates the story. In John 12, in the first part of that chapter, beginning in verse 1, we're told about Mary anointing the feet of Jesus with a pound of expensive perfumed ointment. This Mary is not the mother of Jesus. This is the Mary, which is the sister of Martha, sister of Lazarus. And she anoints the feet of Jesus. She uses her hair to wipe them. And this is when Judas Iscariot scoffs at the wastefulness in his perception of what Mary did. And he argues that the money would have been better spent feeding the poor. But Jesus argues against Judas because there is someone more important than the poor with them, Jesus, the King of Kings. The Messiah, Son of the Most High God, is with them. That's a quick retelling of the story that precedes the triumphal entry. In John 12, verse 1, we're told that Jesus was in the city of Bethany, and this is the place where Lazarus lived. This is the place where Jesus raised him from the dead. And by the way, that miracle is recorded just one chapter previous in John chapter 11. So as you would be reading through the Gospel of John's account of Jesus' life, you'd read about Lazarus being ill, then dying, then being resurrected. And then here you are in chapter 12, where Jesus is back in Bethany. He's with uh, that family before he heads out for the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That narrative story about Lazarus and the miraculous sign of his resurrection is a story that John continues to go back to as he tells us about the triumphal entry. In verses 9 through 11 of John chapter 12, it reads, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And again, at the end of this triumphal entry account in John chapter 12, in verses 17 and 18, uh, John returns back to this, uh, this thread of the story of this miraculous sign of Lazarus' resurrection. In verse 17, he says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. The big idea in the Apostle John that he wants, in this gospel, that the Apostle John wants for his readers to understand is that Jesus is God. The climactic proof that John gives to convince his readers that Jesus truly is God is the sign of raising Lazarus from the dead. There's a series of signs that John gives his readers, and the climax of those signs is the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. This powerful sign of Jesus' divinity causes quite a stir. A large crowd is gathered because they want to see the one who did this miracle, and they want to see the one who had it accomplished. They want to see Lazarus, the proof of the miracle. And the fame of Jesus was spreading so fast and with such intensity that his enemies were planning to kill Jesus, and now they've added Lazarus to that hit list. Uh, The chief priests that are spoken about in verse 10 of of chapter 12 in John, they would have also been members of the Sadducees. That was a religious group that had particular hatred for Lazarus because the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection from the dead. 
And so Lazarus was a big problem for them because his existence made them look stupid or at least like they had bad doctrine. So I imagine that the Sadducees, the chief priests, would have thought if they could kill Lazarus, then maybe they could discredit the sign, this raising of Lazarus, by saying, so what? Lazarus is dead anyways. And verse 11 brings us to the central question about Jesus that we're presented with in this section. John 12, verse 11 says, Because on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And this is the question for us today. Do you believe in Jesus? Or a question that we can ask ourselves is, how do we believe in Jesus? Or in, maybe this is the better way to say it. In what kind of Jesus do we believe? We're going to look at this portion in Jesus' life in John by organizing it into two sections this morning. The first section, or point number one, is this people celebrate Jesus as a national king. And then the second section, or point number two, will be Jesus enters Jerusalem as the king of kings. So we're going to see the people celebrate Jesus as a national king, and then we're going to see Jesus enters Jerusalem as the king of kings. So the people celebrate Jesus as a national king. In verse 12, the feast mentioned here was the Passover. That was going to take place in a few days' time. In the beginning of chapter 12, it says six days before Passover. So this is the feast that the Apostle John is referencing as he records this for us. Leading up to Passover, which was a big national celebration for the nation of Israel, a large number of pilgrims would be traveling to Jerusalem, and that would cause the population of Jerusalem in the, in the surrounding area to grow enormously. The historian Josephus claims that at one point there were over 2 million people estimated in the surrounding area of Jerusalem during this feast time. This means there would be many people traveling to Jerusalem, and as the days unfold, the population of that surrounding area would just continue to increase. So think of what happens in a city in our day when, uh, when they host the Super Bowl or some large convention. You've got people traveling in, you've got airports busy, hotels are filled, taxis are filled, Airbnb and VRBO listings are booked. Basically the opposite of everything going on in our COVID crisis, okay? All these people traveling in, all this hospitality industry in full, uh, full mode. This is what the city in the area of Jerusalem is like. And Jesus is traveling from Bethany into Jerusalem in the middle of all of this uh, excitement. What we need to do now is understand then what the crowd does as Jesus approaches Jerusalem. They're taking palm tree branches and they, as they go out to meet Jesus who is coming nearer to the city. This might seem a little odd to us, uh, but if we were Jews in that day, it would have been very familiar with us. It would have been very customary. The significance of the palm branches is likely linked to a strong sense of Jewish nationalism. Uh, by this time in Israel's history, the palm branch was a common symbol for uh, this Jewish national pride. Uh, in fact, insurrection coins that were uh, stamped with the palm branch in the time of trying to overthrow Roman occupation uh, there were other revolts like the Maccabeans that would have the, the palm branch associated with it as part of this sense of strong national uh, Jewish pride. And so the crowd that's gathering to cheer Jesus into the city, they bring with them this symbol of national Jewish pride. And that gives us a glimpse into what the people had in mind as they celebrated the arrival of Jesus and who they thought he was or they hoped that he would be. The crowd is chanting something as Jesus enters the city. The first term is Hosanna. Uh, this is an interesting word. It's actually not a specific word at all. It's a transliteration in, in the Greek, which is a transliteration of the Hebrew word. And it harkens all the way back to Psalm 118. And the term at its core originally meant 
save, please, has this strong sense of urgency with it, as if you were saying to somebody, please save me now. Imagine what you would scream if you were in the ocean and you got swept out to sea and you were screaming back to land for someone to save you now. But as time unfolded, this term began to become more and more of a celebration phrase, not the sense of an urgency for salvation, but a celebration of salvation that had been received. And that's likely how it's recorded uh, in, because of Psalm 118. Uh, Psalm 118 attaches these explanations of praise, of please save us, with then right after that, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So in other words, when people in Jesus' day were shouting Hosanna, they were shouting something like, hooray, salvation is coming, or hooray, salvation is here. This is what the people were chanting as they said, Hosanna. And the people shout blessing on Jesus as the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, another significant phrase in Israel's uh, history in this plan of redemption, the phrase, the one who comes, was language reserved for terms associated with the Messiah, the, the one that God would send to be the rescuer of his people. And so in, uh, in verse 13, at the end of that verse, they also describe Jesus as the king of Israel. And that wasn't a quote from Psalm 118. What you have here is the people admitting that they're, they're using this prophetic uh, chant from Psalm 118 about God's salvation, identifying Jesus as God's sent one, and then they're telling us specifically who they think he is, the king of Israel. And you might be reading this thinking, well, this is good, right? I mean, finally, the people recognize who Jesus is, that he's their king. But this isn't the first time that a crowd has tried to make Jesus their king. In John chapter 6, after Jesus does one of his miraculous signs of feeding 5,000 people or 5,000 men, probably a larger audience that he fed, in John chapter 6, verse 14, it says, when the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is come into the world. Again, those Messiah-type words. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So as you're reading through John, you get to this point, you might be wondering, well, what's Jesus going to do with this crowd? I mean, the last crowd that he perceived was trying to make him king, he removed himself and hid and did not, uh, did not affirm that. But now here he is entering into Jerusalem, heading into Jerusalem with a crowd, shouting Hosanna, declaring him to be God's sent one and saying, you are our king. What's he going to do? Well, what Jesus does is he affirms their shouts of praise by fulfilling a key prophetic passage found in Zechariah. In verse 14 of John chapter 12, it says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And then John narrates this and connects the significance of what Jesus does with riding in on this mule. He says, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. What Jesus does is he leans into the crowd's celebration of his kingship. He affirms that he is indeed king. But the question or the problem is, is the people are receiving Jesus as a national king. And we're going to see in a moment that Jesus is a different kind of king. Jesus is the king of kings. The passage that Zechariah, uh, from Zechariah that Jesus fulfills describes a king who comes and takes away the possessions of the surrounding enemy nations. The peace that this king brings with him is accomplished by defeating and decisively overpowering his enemies. That's verses 4 through 7, leading up to the quotation that John gives us. In verse 8 of Zechariah 9, we're told that the king is going to guard his people so that no one will ever oppress them or march over them again. And then we find our quotation from Zechariah, which reads like this. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. And Zechariah then goes on to describe this rule of peace that this king brings as a peace that reaches from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth in verse 10. And then in verse 11 of Zechariah 9, still part of this prophetic passage, we're told that the king who comes secures his people's freedom because of the blood of my covenant with you. This all sounds great, right? Jesus is received with shouts of praise as the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. He leans into that affirmation by fulfilling this prophecy from Zechariah 9, re-entering in Jerusalem on this uh, colt of a donkey. But the problem is, is that the people are receiving Jesus as a national king. They come with their symbols of national pride. They declare him as their national king, and they don't understand the significance of who Jesus really is as king. In fact, in verse 16 of John 12, you see it there. It says, even his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So the people are excited about Jesus as a Israeli king, someone God sent to deliver them from Roman oppression and occupation. In verses 17 and 18, John reminds us why the crowd is excited and drawn to Jesus. It's because, in verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet with him was they had, they had heard that he had done this Lazarus sign, this resurrection power. And so all of this shows us that it's possible for someone to be excited about Jesus and still not truly understand or know him as he truly is. The crowd celebrates what they hope to be a national savior, but Jesus is a different kind of savior. And this leads us to our second point this morning. The first being the people celebrate Jesus as a national king, but now we learn that Jesus enters Jerusalem as the king of kings. The triumphal procession that's taking place here, recorded in John 12 and those other gospel accounts, um, was common in that day. Not common like every week, but common in historical knowledge. Conquering heroes returned from war. It was common for uh, for the people of the city to go out and meet their victorious king as he returned uh, from his conquest. Uh, This is something that was common in the Roman era, in the Greco-Roman time. It would have been common in Israel's history, in their conquest. So this is a historical theme that would have been common in that day. It would have been very alarming for the political leaders in that day because they were fearful of Rome hearing about this king, this triumphal perception, this um, this political campaign, so to speak, and they would come in and stomp that out. But the cause for celebration is that Jesus is coming, the king is coming, and the central issue then that we're presented in the triumphal entry is what kind of king is celebrated? What kind of king? Jesus enters as the king of kings. He's much more than a national king. He's not a tribal king. He is the king of kings. He's not engaged in a political campaign to increase his popularity for some vote. The crowd wants Jesus to be their national conquering hero, but Jesus enters the city unlike any conquering hero. In fact, Luke gives us a detail that John doesn't about Jesus before he enters the city as he's traveling to the city from Bethany. You've got, it's such a a contrast. You've got crowds shouting Hosanna, waving palm branches, this national pride, throwing down their cloaks and sense of honor and respect. And what is Jesus doing? Well, in Luke 19, verse 41, it tells us that when Jesus drew near to Jerusalem, he sees the city and he weeps over it. So here you've got Jesus, this 
king being celebrated as he enters Jerusalem, riding, riding in there, and yet Jesus is weeping. He's not this, this powerful dignitary giving kind of this, this you know, popular wave and receiving it all with this glad adoration. What he is doing, he's weeping as he knows that the city does not understand who he truly is. He is a king, yes, but the people did not recognize the kind of king he is. The quotation from Zechariah 9 emphasizes some unique attributes about Jesus. It tells us that the king who comes is a king who is righteous, having salvation. In fact, those two terms in Zechariah 9 are linked. And what it means is, is that the king is bringing salvation because he is righteous. His salvation that he brings with him is a result of his righteousness. And the king described in Zechariah 9 is someone who is humble. This humility is shown in how he enters not on a war horse, but on a common beast of burden that was often associated with people of peace like merchants, traveling from city to city, selling their wares, not on powerful war horses, but on beasts of burden, these humble beasts of merchant. The people want Jesus to enter Jerusalem and lead them in recovering this national independence and this freedom and overthrowing Roman oppression. They want him to restore the Jewish kingdom to its days of glory. Maybe they were thinking of like when David was king or when Solomon was king. But Jesus enters the city not as a national king, but the king of kings. Someone who is going to engage not in a political campaign, but in a campaign to bring light and to bring life. So that not just Jews would bow to him as king, but so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And so that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, as Paul records it in Philippians 2. I think it's interesting that in John's retelling of this account, the story directly preceding the triumphal entry is Jesus being anointed. And I'm sure that anointing was foreshadowing the burial, burial anointing that his dead body would receive in about a week's time. But I also see in Mary's anointing a sort of kingly anointing of Jesus as he sets out toward Jerusalem to fulfill his heroic and kingly acts of redemption as God's Messiah. The salvation and kingdom that the people wanted most was national, geographic, and economic. But the kingdom that Jesus brings with him is of an entirely different sort. In John 18, Jesus answers some uh, questions that he was given by Pilate, now this official. He's, Jesus has been arrested. He's been um, Uh, He's being questioned now, and Jesus answers Pilate, and he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servant would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? You you see, as John is telling it, this is the question that everyone is asking, from the the crowd to the, the officials of the day. So you are a king? This is where the conflict is, is the kind of king that Jesus is. And Jesus answers, again in John 18, you say that I am a king. Jesus knows that there's a disagreement on the understanding, on the definition of kingship. You say that I am a king. And here Jesus is going to describe the kind of king he is. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus came as a king, yes, but a king to be a light shining in the darkness, a light that the darkness could not overcome, John chapter 1. Jesus came as a king so that all who would receive him, 
who believe in his name would be given the right to be called the children of God, John 1.12. And this is, leads us really, as we look in the triumphal entry, it leads us to the central message of what makes Christianity so great, which is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that God coming in flesh to rescue us sinners from our sin. Jesus, the sinless son of God, suffering the penalty for our sins, he being the sinless sacrifice. And he did this so that all who embrace and treasure him as Lord and Savior are forgiven their sin. The guilt and condemnation of sin is removed when, when we are given the promise then of enjoying relationship with God forever. This is the gospel. This is the kind of king that Jesus is as he enters Jerusalem. And so the question then for us this morning would be, do you believe in Jesus to be that kind of king? Notice the despair of the Pharisees in verse 19. The Pharisees, they say to one another, again, these are the enemies of Jesus. They, they say to one another, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. It's, it's like they're looking at each other saying, this is hopeless. I mean, he raised somebody from the dead. The crowd has gone out to receive him. They're shouting praise to him. Even the children in the temple are praising his name. And they think the whole world has gone on after them. They, they kind of throw their hands up almost in, in, uh, in, in just like it's, there's nothing they can do. But the irony is that this is exactly why Jesus came, so that the world would come to him in faith. Right, John 3.16 says that whoever believes in Jesus should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus enters Jerusalem as the king of kings because only God can overthrow the sinful dominion of sinful darkness. Only God in flesh can overthrow the grasp of the devil on humankind. John the Apostle writes later in a letter in 1 John 3, verse 8, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And Jesus explains more of the kind of king he is when he answers the question of some Greeks later in John 12. Again, John the Apostle wants us as readers to understand who Jesus is. In beginning in verse 23, Jesus answers these, these Greeks who asked him questions and says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The kind of king that Jesus is wasn't a national political ruler to overthrow Roman oppression. He was the king of kings, but a king of kings like no one had considered before. A king of kings who had likened himself to a grain of wheat falling into the ground having to die before much fruit would be, would be produced. His glory was not the stuff of crowds. His glory was not the stuff of, of celebrations nationally. His glory was that of suffering, of death, and of resurrection. Jesus enters Jerusalem righteous and humble, riding a donkey to destroy our enemies of sin and death and hell through the blood of his covenant. And this then brings us to our conclusion. We're Right? Stories are, are, are told so that we all ask, the, like, so what? You know, so what are we to do with this? How is this truth supposed to influence our lives, impact us? And that's how stories work. Every time we hear a story, we wonder with eager curiosity, what are the characters going to do? Well, at least the first time you hear the story. And good stories, they can grab us so much that in some ways we share in the main characters joys and delights and sorrows and triumphs and fears. In fact, some of you this past week have either read stories or watched stories and you have cried or laughed along with them. 
So I'm going to invite us to consider some questions to apply the truth of this story in John 12 to our own hearts. What kind of king do we want Jesus to be for us, or do we think Jesus is for us? I'm not asking if you would shout Hosanna uh, in, in the praise of Jesus with a whole crowd around you. It's easy to do things in a crowd. I'm asking what kind of salvation do you expect from God? I think most, if not all of us who are watching would say that, yeah, we believe in Jesus, but so do the crowd in their own way. Maybe we can ask it this way. Is the Jesus you want the Jesus God has given? Do you want someone to primarily save you from physical pain and distress? Or do you yearn for someone to rescue you ultimately from the condemning guilt of your sin? Do you want an economic savior to restore financial prosperity? Or do you want someone to bring you peace with God? Do you hope for a savior who will make our nation great? Or do you want a savior who will bring all peoples, tongues, and tribes into eternal enjoyment of God? What if God doesn't give us relief from physical pain? Or what if he doesn't restore our financial prosperity? Would our hearts revolt within us to echo a different chant, much like the Jewish crowd in a few days' time will be chanting for Jesus' crucifixion? You see, true Christians don't celebrate Jesus as a sort of fairy godmother type who brings us happiness through physical comforts or someone who helps us achieve our dreams. True Christians celebrate Jesus as the one who gives eternal life through the forgiveness of our sins. We celebrate and sing Hosanna as Christians today from our hearts because he accomplished our salvation with the blood of his sacrifice. The value of Jesus is not found in the physical blessings he might give. For a true Christian, the value of Jesus is found in the peace with God that he gives all who embrace and treasure him in faith. So what this means for our present-day COVID crisis might be something like this. As we wait for the Lord and pray for his mercy on us in this pandemic, Christians still have reason to say Hosanna. We still have reason to say, praise God, salvation is here. And I'm not diminishing the need or the goodness of saving lives or of economic stability. What I'm trying to do is heighten our understanding and appreciation of all that God has given us in Christ I'm asking us to evaluate in what we find our greatest joy and satisfaction. When financial prosperity is threatened, when physical life is uncertain, when Christians, Christians of all people still have deep wells of joy to draw from, we have, as Paul wrote about it in Ephesians 3, we have the unsearchable riches of Christ, the King of Kings, who entered Jerusalem, set out to accomplish his heroic acts of redemption, So be encouraged, Christian. God has given us exactly the Savior we need. He has has given us Jesus, who is full of grace and truth. And from the fullness of Jesus, we all receive grace upon grace. John 1, verses 16 and 17. God has given us, in Jesus as the King of Kings, he's given us the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, our sin, John 1, 29. We've been given a King who is gentle and lowly in heart who invites all of us to find rest in him, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. So I think as we consider the triumphal entry this morning, I think it would be good for us to gaze ahead at a prophecy of another triumphal entry. This time Jesus comes not on a donkey, but on a white war horse. In Revelation 6, it's recorded in verse 2, he looks and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. 
Jesus' first triumphal entry was in humility as a suffering savior, but his next entry is going to be a triumphal one with great splendor and majesty as a conquering hero. In Revelation 17, 14, we're told this, they will make war on the lamb, and for using John's words, right, the lamb of God, Jesus, and the lamb will conquer them. That's what he did when he entered Jerusalem and died and rose again. Here's why, Revelation 17, 14, for he is Lord of hosts, a Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And so in these days of fear and uncertainty, of isolation, let's keep a firm gaze on Christ. In Hebrews 12, let, let's use that exhortation. Let's run our race of faith with patience. Continue looking to Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith. Keep a firm gaze on the joy that's promised to us through Christ, that he secured for us, a joy that Jesus secured for us through his suffering and sacrifice. So that means then whatever suffering and sacrifice is required of us will without a doubt be worth it when we are given unimaginable and eternal joy. Praise God that we have been given not a national king, but the king of kings. Let's bow in prayer. Gracious Father, we stand amazed and in awe of all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. He came riding a donkey, bringing with him peace that it was accomplished through his death and sacrifice and resurrection. Lord, comfort our hearts in these days, knowing that you have given us the King of Kings, that your kingdom is certain, it is sure, it is secured, and our inheritance in that kingdom is certain and sure and secured because of Christ. May we be a people in the middle of a COVID crisis that can still say Hosanna, not because we want a national king, but because we know we've been given the King of Kings. May we as a people spread the fame of Jesus by drawing from these wells of joy. Help us to point others to this great King. May our hearts return uh, to remember that we are children of this King. And Father, keep us faithful. May we be quick to return to God-centered joy and point others to that joy as well. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray this. Amen.